We are going to be in John chapter 14 uh, this morning. Uh, It's on page 867 of those Bibles that the uh, ushers handed out. Uh, If you didn't take one of those, I have no idea what page it's on for you. So um, there was a study done uh, this year by the American Psychological Association that reported that stress in America is at an all-time high. Uh, with over 55% of Americans saying that they are unable to enjoy life because of it. Over half of our country is unable to enjoy life because of the stress they are experiencing. 65% of millennials, 64% of Gen Zers say that their stress is at an all-time high. 59% of all Americans say the past year has been the most stressful of their lives. Senior citizens say it's the most stressful decade of the past 60 years. 61% of Americans are stressed about their personal finances. 44%, this is horrible, 44% say they've skipped meals to pay bills. 57% of American workers are stressed about their pay. 46% are stressed about poor work-life balance. 59% of Americans say stress negatively affects their relationships uh, with people they care about. Uh, 63% of Americans say social media has added to their stress, including 69% of Gen Z Americans. And yet, they continue to engage with it. It's a bad drug. I imagine everyone in the room can relate to at least least one of those uh, causes of of stress. Well, how do Americans cope with this stress? The study said this, over 80% cope by listening to music or watching TV and movies. Over 70% cope by sleeping to escape the stress. Over 60% cope by interacting with a pet. That's not bad, right? 55% cope by exercising. Also not a bad thing. But listen to these numbers. 43% cope by overeating. 41% cope by lashing out at others. Not sure how that's a coping skill. 40% cope by smoking or vaping, nicotine or tobacco. 39% cope by drinking alcohol. 34% cope by shopping for things they don't need. 34% cope by smoking or vaping cannabis. And sadly, and I was just given these numbers on Friday, 20% of Americans have thoughts of suicide with over 47,000 dying by suicide in the last year. And males over 60, this was disturbing, make up the highest percentage of those suicide cases. Stress is literally killing us. And as we come to John chapter 14, we have a room full of guys with whom we can relate. They're stressed. When we we combine the accounts of all four Gospels, we know that just during this meal, 
that they are having with Jesus. Jesus has said that he is going away. He said that he's going to die. He said that one of the 12 will uh, betray him, is, is a traitor. Peter will disown him three times. Satan is at work against all of them, he says, and all of them will fall away. Add, add to this that they have left family, home, and their jobs to follow Jesus. What were they going to do once he was gone? Also, they've been publicly following Jesus, whom the religious leaders are trying to kill. Surely they must imagine that they may be on their hit list as well. Right? No wonder they are stressed. No wonder their hearts are troubled. And it's into that context and into our context that Jesus says in verse 1 of chapter 14, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. Jesus understands that the disciples are troubled. The, the, the word uh, he uses here uh, means to, to be shuddering with distress, right? And he's about to tell them how to cope, how to get through this. Some of your translations might use the word believe, which is, is a good word, but it's important to understand when you see that word that it's not just some sort of mental assent that Jesus exists. I believe in Jesus, right? The word means to put your complete trust in someone or something. And Jesus says that trusting in God and trusting in him are the remedy for the disciples' troubled, shuddering, distressed hearts. And I think he would say to us this morning, trusting him is the remedy for our troubled hearts as well. Uh, this is not, though, some shallow pep talk where, where Jesus is saying, cheer up, guys, things aren't that bad, right? In one horrible movie that tried to make... I shouldn't even say it. I'm too far into it now. That's where they went with this. Always look on the bright side of life. That's not what Jesus is saying here. He's not on the Partridge family bus saying, come on, get happy. Uh, don't, don't lose sight of this. John Piper suggests that Jesus gives the disciples five reasons for why they should trust him. And I'm going to be drawing uh, from some of his work uh, on this passage this morning because it's been very helpful for me in my own understanding of this conversation. And I, I hope it will be helpful uh, for you as you learn to trust Jesus in your own stressful and troubled times. We find the first reason in verse 2. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Why? In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If not, I would have told you. I'm going to prepare a place for you. Uh, some of you are the right age, not too old and not too young, uh, to remember the audio adrenaline 
song called Big Big House, right? And they sang, it's a big, big house with lots and lots of room. It's a big, big table with lots and lots of food. A big, big yard where we can play football. A big, big house. It's my father's house. I don't know about the football part, but they capture well, I think, what Jesus is saying. God's house is big, and there's room for everyone. He's not ever going to run out of room. There will never be a no vacancy sign on God's house. There's room for everyone who trusts in him, even Peter, who will deny him, even you, even me. Miroslav Volf talks about the tragedy of Judas killing himself because he says forgiveness could have been available to him as well. Even Judas, right? John told us in chapter 1 that those who trust in him become God's children. Jesus says here, don't let your hearts be full of fear or sorrow or shame Trust me. Why? Because I'm going to prepare a place for you in my Father's house as my Father's children forever. So that's the first lesson. The second reason uh, Jesus gives for trusting in Him when our hearts are troubled is because He's going to prepare a place for us. He says it here in verse 2, says it again at the beginning of verse Three, uh, Jesus is going to prepare a place for us. Now, there may be uh, a problem with some of our understanding of this, though. Some, I've heard uh, people say, isn't it, isn't it cool? Jesus was a carpenter when he, when he uh, growing up in, in Joseph's house, right? He, that was the trade. He was a carpenter, and now he's in heaven building a place for us, right? The first part of verse 2 says that uh, God's house and the dwelling places in it already exist. Hmm. I know, maybe Jesus had to go do an extreme makeover, you know, a remodel of God's house. No, that doesn't fit with Scripture either. Matthew 25, Jesus says, come, you are a who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you, already prepared for you from the creation of the world. Let me ask you, if God's kingdom was prepared for us from the creation of the world, does it make sense to think that some of the rooms in his house are not? No, it doesn't. So what was not yet ready that Jesus had to prepare? He has to prepare something. What what was it that wasn't ready? Well, Piper and other Bible scholars think that what wasn't yet prepared was the way to our rooms in God's house. Certainly, part of what was at the forefront of Jesus' mind in this conversation is the cross. At the time that Jesus is saying these words, there's still this huge obstacle that stands in the way of the disciples going to their dwelling place in God's house. Sin had not been dealt with on the cross. Death 
had not been defeated by the resurrection. Our way to forgiveness and eternal life with God had not yet been accomplished. And in the next three days, from the time that Jesus says this, all of those obstacles between the disciples and a place for them in God's eternal home were going to be removed. Jesus, though, at this point, still had to prepare the way for us to get to God's house. It seems to be confirmed, I think, with what he says to Thomas in verses 4 through 6. You know the way where I'm going. Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus replied, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Again, drawing from Piper, he says, in other words, Jesus is saying, I go to prepare a place for you, and as I go, I become the way that you get there. I am the truth that you hold on to to get there. And I am the life, the eternal life that you will enjoy when you get there. So when I say I go to prepare a place for you, I mean I open the way and I am the way. I confirm the truth and I am the truth. I purchase life and I am that life. What does that mean? It means that Peter and the, the other disciples and, and you and, and I don't have to have troubled hearts when everything feels like it's falling apart on us. Instead, we can have peace. A, a deep, settled sense of wholeness. Shalom. Because our sin no longer means that our place in God's house is unavailable to us like it once was. Friends, when we trust in the work of Jesus on the cross, believing that it was enough and receiving the forgiveness of sins that he offers, we have a sure and certain hope that there will be a place for us there. So, Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust me. There's another way that Jesus prepares a place for us, and, and it becomes the third uh, reason, really, for us to trust in him. Let's go back up to verse 3. Jesus said, And if I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to myself, so that where I am, you may be also. So Jesus makes a promise here about his return to take us somewhere. Where does he promise to take us? To himself, yes, where he is. This is another argument against him going to build rooms for us. Jesus is, is shifting the focus here from a place to a person. In fact, I think we could say it this way. Jesus is our dwelling place. Uh, the Greek word that uh, John uses for dwelling places in verse 1 uh, is a word, uh, uh, sounds like this, mone, okay? And it's related to the word that Jesus will use in the next chapter in John 15 where he says that we must abide in him. We must find our dwelling, our abode in him. Jesus is our dwelling place. 
Jesus himself. When we get focused on descriptions of pearly gates or streets of gold or crystal seas, we're missing the main point of heaven. Heaven is about forever abiding in the presence of God. I think this passage talks about Jesus' second coming, but it doesn't talk about streets of gold or pearly gates. It does not say that Jesus is coming back to take us to heaven. What it does say is that he's coming back to take us to himself. And I think this is part of what he means when he says that he has to go prepare a place for us. He's saying, I am your room in my Father's house, and I am not prepared yet to receive you there. I must die. I must rise. I must be glorified. I must go to the Father. And when I've done that, then I will be ready, and I will come and take you to myself. What, what this text tells us about the second coming is not about heaven, but about, about a reunion with Jesus. There's, a, there's an old gospel song that talks about a person's dream of going to heaven. I love the song. And when the person got there, they saw all the sights, the, the pearly gates, the streets of gold. They saw all the heroes of the faith, that great cloud of witnesses listed for us in Hebrews. And, and the dreamer in the song says, I saw Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob talked with Mark and Timothy. But then I said, I want to see Jesus. He's the one who died for me. I'm sorry, that's what I want. I hope for you that being with Jesus is the very definition of heaven. Because if you're hoping for something else, it's not heaven. I don't know what it is, but it's not heaven. Because Jesus is what it means to go to heaven. Jesus is saying, I will come again and will take you to myself. Therefore, my beloved disciples, my friends, my friends at Grace, let not your heart be troubled. Trust me. Trust me that I am coming for you. I will come and I will take you. And trust me because the dwelling I have prepared for you is my crucified, risen, and glorified self. Don't be troubled. I'm going to come and take you to myself. Well, some of you might be saying this morning, that's great, Pastor. But my heart is troubled here and now, right? I'm trying to make ends meet now. I'm trying to feed my kids now. I'm trying to save my marriage now. I'm trying to fill in the blanks, whatever that thing is that's causing your heart to be troubled right now. Does Jesus say anything about that? Or is it all just about enduring until this life is over. And that seems to be at the heart of what Philip is asking for in verse 8. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough. 
Philip's not asking to see God someday. He wants to see God now. If, if he can just see God, that will be enough. It's the same word that Paul uses in 2 Corinthians 12. My grace is sufficient. It is enough. If I can just see God, Philip says, then I will be content. Philip's not satisfied for that veiled witness of God that we see in creation, like Psalm 19 talks about, or Romans 1 or Acts 14. He's asking the same question that Moses asked on that mountain that day. God, let me see you. Philip wants more than just a witness about God. He wants to see God. I don't know if any of you know the name Fred Craddock. He was one of the great preachers of the 20th centuries. Uh, He says, Philip is not satisfied simply to have a witness in creation that there is a God. There's nothing saving, nothing redeeming in believing that there is a God. Our desire is to know God, to know what God is like, to know what our relationship is with Him and His to us. Show us that. There isn't a cloud or a bird or a leaf or or sunset that can tell me that. And so Philip speaks not only for himself and not only for the 12, but I think for all of us, because we're all full of questions about life, death, and what do we do next? And our minds and hearts will find satisfaction if we can know God. And so we say, show us God. Philip wants to know if there's something to satisfy his troubled heart right now, today. And Jesus' answer is a little perplexing, but I think it's a resounding yes. Verses uh, 7 through 11, Jesus repeats himself five times. Again, And again and again, he wants his disciples to know that he and his father are so profoundly one that Jesus is the presence of the father. To answer Philip's request to see God, Jesus is sort of saying, Philip, he's standing right here in front of you. Let's look at it. First time. Verse 7a, if you know me, you will also know my Father. Second time, 7b, from now on you do know him and have seen him. Third time, 9b, the one who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Fourth time, don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Or verse 11, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Jesus seems maybe just a little frustrated here with Philip's dullness. How can you say that, Philip? I've been with you three years doing all these signs. We've seen them as we've been going through the book of John. All of these signs that should have made it plain to you. Philip says, show us the Father and that'll be enough. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, Philip, you've been seeing the Father for three years. 
Is it enough, Philip? Is it? If you would trust me on this, your heart wouldn't be in the turmoil that it's in right now. Maybe you all are tracking with me so far as, as we look back at the conversation with the disciples. Maybe you can see it's pretty obvious that the disciples should have been comforted to know that God's house was big enough, that Jesus was preparing a way for them to be in God's house as his children, that Jesus himself was the dwelling place, and that if they have seen Jesus, they have seen the Father. Some of you might be here this morning thinking, well, that's, that's great for them, but what about me? Jesus left. I can't see him. Where does that leave me? How does that help my troubled heart today? Which brings us to the last argument for trusting in Jesus when your heart is troubled. And it's one that moves beyond the disciples uh, to very specifically include us. That fifth reason that we should trust in Jesus to calm our troubled hearts is because he's with us now. Not just in the future when he comes again. And to see this, we need to jump down to verses 16 to 20, where Jesus said, I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to be with you forever. He is the spirit of truth. The world is unable to receive him because it does not see him or know him. But you do know him because he abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I am coming to you. In a little while, the world will see me no longer, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live too. And in that day, you will know that I am in my Father, you are in me, and I am in you. Jesus says, I am in you. Sometimes I think our Baptist tradition is, has sort of downplayed the role of the Holy Spirit. Too often we view the Trinity as sort of this hierarchy with God the Father at the top and the Holy Spirit at the, at the bottom. It's not biblical. What Jesus says at the end of verse 17, when he says, the Spirit abides with you, and will be in you, what he means is, I will abide with you, and I will be in you. Really? Am I, am I, am I pressing the point too far? Look at verses 19 and 20. Jesus says that though the world can't see him, we will see him, Jesus. We will see Jesus, and at the end of verse 20, he says it plainly, I am in you. Apostle Paul does the same thing in Romans 8, 9, and 10. Familiar uh, passage to many of you. Paul says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, since the Spirit of God lives in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ... Wait. I thought we were talking about the Spirit of God. Uh-huh. Same thing. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Now, if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Paul equates the Holy Spirit 
with the Spirit of Christ. That is to say that Christ is in you if you have put your trust in him. We don't have to wait for the second coming, as glorious as that will be. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, right? But we don't have to wait till then to experience the presence of Christ with us and in us. This is why Jesus will say later that it's better for us that he goes away because by going away, he is able to be present with all of us. He's not left us as orphans. He has come to us in his spirit who abides with us as we abide in him. So I want to say this morning, if you have trusted in Christ, he's with you in your turmoil. He understands your troubled heart. And he cares. He is is more interested right now and more caring about right now your parenting and your marriage and your singleness and your failing health and your job and your loneliness. He's more interested in that and cares more about it than, than you can possibly know. He's not come as a passive observer, but as our advocate, our helper, our comforter. So friends, whatever is troubling your heart this morning, and I'm confident we have a room full of troubles, right? Whatever is troubling you this morning, hear this. Let not your hearts be troubled because God's house is big enough for all of you. Let not your hearts be troubled because Jesus has prepared a way for you to get there. He opened the way. He is the way. Let not your hearts be troubled because Jesus himself is your dwelling place and will one day come to take you to himself. Let not your heart be troubled because Jesus and the Father are one. If you have Jesus, you have the Father. And let not your hearts be troubled because Jesus is with you now in the Holy Spirit. He is your advocate, your helper, and your comforter. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your words to troubled hearts this morning. Holy Spirit, would you grow and deepen our trust in Jesus. Father, show us yourself as we look to Jesus. I pray that you would bring your peace into the chaos of our lives and of our world. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.